I want to ask you, if you would, this, this week, uh, be praying for myself and for Pete Shefferstein. We have the opportunity to, to travel down to the orphanage in Mexico and uh, be a part of some meetings there, just, just some, some needs of a growing ministry that, that needs to be adjusted, and we trust and pray the Lord will give wisdom to us and the other board members of Rancho 3M to help them in the future adjust to a growing ministry. But I, I also just, not only do I want you to pray for those meetings this week, uh, but also want you to be aware of what your involvement, uh, Evan spoke earlier about being members of a local church. And, and membership uh, is, is more than attendance. Membership is ownership. Membership is you recognizing that God uses a local church like a vehicle through which to accomplish things. And so there's, there's just simple truth that if it, if it were not for your involvement in this local church, uh, well, then I'm not sure what would be happening at Rancho 3M today. Because, you know, Dean and Denise are the products of your lives lived here and serving here and making this place what God's called it to be, and your involvement here is what makes it possible for uh, myself and for Pete to serve here locally as well as to serve extra locally. So please don't feel detached. When you hear announcements about, you know, guys, we're going somewhere to do something, we really we go as ambassadors of Lakeview Christian Center. We go uh, representing the work that God is doing here, and that work's taking place because you are faithfully a part of it and you're praying and you're supporting and giving. Uh, so thank you for the privilege of representing you this week. Uh, well, if you want to be finding your way to Psalm 27, uh, we are going to visit this morning our gaze and we are going to land more clearly this morning again in the gazing category. I want to introduce you to the, your new modus operandi and yeah, I noticed I, I use the word new in a, in a unique way. It's your new because it has something to do with what you know. And gazing is about fixing your attention on something that you might know it. Now, I just want to do a quick review here. I don't want to take time in this. But if you are kind of joining us with this series already in progress, there's some groundwork we've been laying that is summed up in these three points. One, we're all in the happiness business no matter what form or shape, no matter whether you're old or young, blue collar, white collar executive, whatever it is that you are, you're here this morning with one thing in common with everybody else in this room. You want to be happy. You want your life to have a sense of well-being, a sense that you are moving in a good direction. And the only question that all of us are going to try and answer today is, what do we believe will bring us to happiness? That's where the battle's being fought. So everybody's here. We got that in common, but we're trying to figure out what are we going to believe that's going to produce that sense of happiness. Second, you are influenced by the culture around you. And our culture is not going to introduce you to wise ways of pursuing happiness. It is going to introduce you to ways to pursue happiness. And, and if you'll pay attention, what's going to get featured in that presentation is going to be momentary and pleasure-oriented. And pleasure is going to have a very narrow definition to it. 
momentary and pleasure-oriented. That's what you're going to get presented to you. But when we get around God, we find out wisdom in being happy involves eternal things. It involves non-pleasurable things. Right? Some of the things that have made us the happiest people on the earth have been things that weren't easy. They were difficult to accomplish. They involved self-denial and sacrifice that in the moment didn't feel real happy to do that. But yet in God's purpose, they, they were a source and a means of us experiencing the reward and fulfillment that he had behind those things. So be careful as we're exposed to the culture. The culture doesn't have an accurate knowledge of the God who made you in his image. So if you're here today and you've got very little idea about what the image of God is, well, then I can tell you, you've got very little idea about how to be happy. There's no way. If you're made in the image of God and therefore you exist to, to show forth that image of God and you've got very little knowledge of that God, then you've got very little chance of truly experiencing happiness. And then last week we looked at the fact that the thing that has created the origin of an unhappy universe is when man decided that he didn't need to feature God in his knowledge. That we could know things, know life, know people, but we weren't going to feature God as being the centerpiece of our knowledge. And Romans chapter 1 introduces us to a very miserable existence, and that's what we've inherited. Now, this morning, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is... This is this is probably a tip beyond your tithe, so just be grateful for it. Um, as we venture into spring at some point here in the next two months, you are going to break your lawnmower out of your garage or wherever you keep it, right? It's, it's on its way out. It's been winterized, and if you're like me, you're, you're going to have problems with your lawnmower. I'm just, just warning you, it's going to happen. Um, well, my years and years of lawnmower experience, which I do have quite a bit, um, has taught me that uh, I'm either going to buy a new lawnmower every couple of years or I'm going to learn how to fix this one. And so I choose to learn how to fix it. So I, I either know where the operations manual is for the lawnmower or I know how to go online and find it because I know I'm going to need it at some point. So you're going to take your lawnmower out and you're going to do what all of us do. You're going to reach down and yank on that cord and, and it's going to do what lawnmowers do, right? It's going to make some kind of a sound short of starting. And, and, and then depending on how old you're getting is depending on how many times you're going to pull. And, uh, and, and you're going to try and figure out why won't this thing start? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you two reasons that probably are 80% of the reasons why your lawnmower is not going to start. It's one of two reasons just saving you the the headache of looking this up. It's either that your lawnmower is not getting the right amount of gas. Right? Those of you who have played with lawnmowers, you know what I'm talking about. Or, this is a little more complicated, but it's really not that much harder to fix. Your lawnmower is not getting spark. Because quite simply, all your lawnmower is is a combustion engine, right? It, it blows stuff up over and over and over again so that the piston goes up and down and the motor runs. So the right amount of gas comes into the explosion chamber by your carburetor, and the little spark plug provides spark. And those two guys get along really well. 
And so when that happens, that explosion takes place. That's what makes it go beyond. That's just the mechanical stuff moving on the inside. When it kicks and goes, that's because your spark plug and your gas mixture are getting along just right. All right. If right now spring is upon you and, and you know, your own, your own happiness as a, as a human being device here is having a hard time getting started. Right? Maybe you're, you're feeling like in the happy category, I'm, I just, I just can't seem to turn the corner on happy. You know, I'm glad we're doing this happiness series. It's touching on some things, but I, you know, I'm, I'm just not there. Just life is this wrestling match. Life is just falling short. Life doesn't feel the way it's supposed to feel, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm 80% sure you've got one of two things going on in your life. You're either not getting the right amount of God into your life or you lack the spark of the Holy Spirit in your life. Right, so this is, this is like a troubleshooting manual. And so when I read it, because my lawnmower of happiness just isn't, isn't doing right, there, this speaks to it. This Bible speaks to your happiness, your sense of wellness and well-being. If you open it up and troubleshoot your own life, you're going to find out one of those things is often the cause for the lack of happiness in our lives. Now, before I... I turn our attention to Psalm 27, if you're not there already. Um, let me just tell you a reality, and I didn't pull up any stats on this, but I will in, in the coming weeks. Um, th- this, this is the troubleshooting manual of life. And it's really written that way. From the moment this Bible gets going, it's, it's trying to explain to you why things are the way they are. That's why it's written. So it's trying to engage your broken life in your broken world with your broken relationship with God and explain why you sputter and, and things just don't run well in your life. But, but here is a major, major problem that when your spiritual lawnmower goes to sputtering, do you know anything about how to fix it? Do, do you go to the manual much at all? Because this, this is a... This is an epidemic problem today is I don't, I don't know if in my lifetime there has become a more neglected time for our lives engaging this word. I don't, I don't know if I can look back and remember seasons where it just seems so common for us to be so unfamiliar with this book this past week. Just, you know, how much time did you really spend engaging the word of God this past week in your life? Well, statistics are showing and conversations that we're having are showing that we're well-intended, but we just don't pull it off. And it leaves us very vulnerable in a very dangerous condition because we need this word. We can't survive without it. And there's just not going to be happiness without the knowledge that it points us to and brings us to in God. So let's look here, our modus operandi of one thing, one thing, Psalm 27. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord 
is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Well, Lord, that's, that's what we've come here this morning to do, exactly that. Uh, Lord, thank you for the songs that we sang this morning that helped us, aided us in gazing on you, in beholding what our souls thirst and crave and long for. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity as we study your word to inquire, to gain insight and understanding, to get a greater knowledge of you in our lives. Holy Spirit, provide the spark for us as we are together that we might see and know God more deeply. Amen. Look here in verse 2. Here, here, are, here are life conditions that are coming. Right? Can I just promise you this? Most of you would say, hey, you don't need to promise. They're already here. Those, these are descriptions that I know something about. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they who stumble and fall. Right, there's a gathering of difficulty here in these characters. There's evildoers, adversaries, and foes that are coming. And the Bible doesn't say if, it says when. When they come. Now, now here's a little bit of a challenge for us. You know, you, this is King David, General David. You know, he's a warrior. He knows what it is to have a, a sword in his hand and somebody opposing him with a spear a sword in his hand. He knows what it is to go to battle. You know, if I was preaching this morning at West Point or at a military base somewhere, I'd probably address this a little bit differently. But ain't none of, nobody in here is facing gunfire this week. Nobody's going to go out there and have to pull a sword out because physically your life is going to be threatened in this way. But, you know, the Bible writes out of the context of David's life and it gets listened into the context of our lives. So you and I have a different kind of people in our lives. But there's still adversaries and foes that are in our lives. And, and, and when you think about just the, the philosophy that's in this passage, when these come, well, when does a foe come? When does a foe have the ability to show up in your life, an opposer in your life? Well, it can only show up when you're actually trying to go somewhere. When you're actually trying to accomplish something. And, you know, that's kind of what happiness is for us. It's us moving toward the things that we think are going to be a source of well-being for us. So anytime you begin to move, even if that move is take a nap, be left alone. If you want to move in that direction, there are foes in your life that will keep you from arriving. 
whatever well-being you're after. And so I think when I look in this passage, I can look back in my life and find some real some real evildoers, some real adversaries that came from out there. And, you know, they were people who wanted to be hostile toward my life. But I think what's more common for us is the foes that oppose these desires in our lives are probably seated next to us. (laughs) They're probably people that we, we don't want them dead and we don't want them out of our lives. We just want them to stop being in the way of our happiness, right? They're just, they're just that sense of, man, you're, I love you dearly, but you're in the way, you know, of me trying to get what I think will be good for me, right? If, uh, if you're, if you're a parent here this morning, uh, your, your children can be great source of blessing and enjoyment and treasures and some of the most important people who will ever exist in your life. And they can be your foe as well. And in a weird way, this is, this is educational for kids. This is why we're weird as parents. Um, but here's a weird way that, that kids become our foes, right? You, you have children, you've lived life, you're out in front of them. So you've lived these years and you've experienced some good from God and you've experienced some blessing from him. And you've also experienced some difficulty and some tragedy and some things that you wish didn't happen. You've got regrets. You've got people in your life that have those stories. And you look back at your kids and, and, and you're like, you're wanting certain things for them and you're wanting them to avoid some other things. So this is built into you. And the next thing you know, your, your own sense of well-being gets kind of wrapped up in them navigating the course of life, right? Moving toward good, avoiding what's bad. And, and you want that for them. And if you're a normal parent, you want that for them. Right? This doesn't make you some horrible person who's trying to live your life through your kids. Uh, it could be that. But you could just be a plain old normal parent who just, plan, you just love your children. And you want good for them. And you want them to be rescued from suffering and harm. And then they begin to make their own decisions in life that put them in harm's way. That don't prepare them for a great future. You know that, hey, you know, if you, if you keep that habit going, ain't no way you're going to land right here. You just, you've been here. You know. That never gets you here. And so you want for them some things that they don't want for themselves. Have you ever had any of these issues with your kids? And so, in a way, their well-being gets caught up in your well-being. Right. I mean, I, I can't, I can get quite happy about feeling like my kids have blessing in front of them. I, that makes me, it makes me increase my sense of well-being. It, it is, it is more well with my soul in the moment when I feel like my kids have taken a step to, in a direction that's going to bless them and, and care for them and benefit them. But what happens when they take a step this way instead of that way? Well, in that moment, I'm fighting for this and and my own children have become my foes in that moment. They are opposing the sense of well-being that happens to be weirdly wrapped up in their own lives. And so for the sake of their own life, they've become my enemy. (laughs) That's the kind of people we have in our lives. Your spouse, your spouse can become your foe, right? You're, You're married to someone and your life is a partnership so that, you know, you, you don't have the ability to go this way toward blessing and benefit and good. And that person go this way toward something else. 
you're going together in this thing. And your spouse has got weaknesses and your spouse has sin attached to him. And you do too, by the way. And so you start traveling down this road and, and, and issues just keep popping up over and over and over again. Right? When you're married to somebody, that's how the terrain is. You, you marry a person who's got issues that, that look similar to the ones they had when they were 20, 30, and 40. And now you're 50 or 60. And, and you know, they're still kind of there in some form. And you start feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just trapped in this situation because, you know, they're never going to change. Well, why does that even bother you? Because I'm tied to them and I want to be over there. Well, why do you want to be? Why do you want to be over there so bad? Because I think I'd be happy over here. My sense of well-being would, would be improved if I could be here. But you know what? That person that I'm married to is my foe is my opponent. He or she is opposing my ability to get where I think I'm going to be happy. Right? And, th- and this travels into every corner of our life. If you're a teenager here, certainly you're, you're questioning whether your parents are your foes because they do stuff that seems like it opposes where you think you need to be in order to be happy. And so when we come to this verse here, and you know, again, we don't have any, we're not brandishing swords and shooting weapons here. But but there are some foes in our lives. There are some folks that we feel like are in the way of us experiencing this sense of happiness. And then, then, you know, then you get this imagery here. These armies are encamped and war is rising, right? Can you get this picture here? I mean, I I got images of, you know, dusty, walled off biblical cities where armies are encamping, right? So when you look up and you got your binoculars out and you look at the distance, there's beginning to be a few enemies on the horizon to the east. And then as you watch, they begin to spread out and they're filling in toward the north now. And, and you turn around and a few now are in the south as well. And, and you're being encamped against. Something is surrounding you. Something is making you feel like you are never getting out of this. And war is arising. This intensity is arising. Now, when I, I look at this verse, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not going to be driving a tank this week. So I, where am I going to apply this? Well, when I look at this verse, this feels more like the war within me. That's, I don't know how you guys are, but this is, this is what the war within me feels like. Because I've been living with me for a long time, as far as I can remember, actually. And there are, there are, there's stuff about me that, that feels like it just encamps around me. I I start feeling like I'm never getting out of this alive. (laughs) This thing about me is just been traveling with me. And you know, 360, no matter where I look, it's, it's all around me. And and then, and then at moments it feels like war because it's intense and, and you take your best shot at it and it's there again next week, full bloom. And you take another shot at it and, it, and it's like a war, war that just goes on and on and on. And, and these are issues that sit in us, deep issues, like, like pride, insecurity, jealousy, anger, control. And if I'm using words that have been in your resume, uh, you, you probably are saying, hey, I've you know, varying degrees of that through time, but yeah. 
always on the landscape of life, always tempting, always threatening. And our, this, this is how life feels. This is real life for us. But in this psalm, there's an answer to life, right? This, the, the psalm starts somewhere else, and then it says, welcome to real life. It starts in verse 1 with, the Lord is something. The Lord is something. And in this psalm, he's revealed as the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Now let me look at life. That life when evildoers assail me and adversaries and foes come in and armies encamp against me and my heart's tempted to fear and war arises against me. I love what this says here, verse 3. Yet I will be confident. That's a great word. I will be confident. Keith, in the midst of everything you just described, you got foes, you got people who don't cooperate, you got opposing situations, you got enemies rising up from within you that seem menacing and won't go away. In the midst of that, those real situations, you will be confident. Why? You don't have to raise your hands this morning, but I wonder how many of us this morning would be sitting here saying, this morning, I am confident. I'm confident about my life. And my next question to you would be, why are you so confident? Because you can be confident for all the wrong reasons, by the way. And, and there will come a day, and it will surprise you, that those reasons will get yanked out from underneath your feet. And you'll discover where your confidence was. Why are you confident? Well, the psalmist here is confident because the Lord is something. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And the Lord is my refuge in this life. And this is just one psalm letting us gaze on a particular dimension of God. There's much more to God than what's in this psalm in just verse 1. But it's the mode of operation I want us to catch here. When you, when you look at life, you need to have seen something about God when you look at life. When life encamps around you, when there's real foes going off in your life, you need to have already seen something about God. What matters more than what you understand about your life is what you know about your God. Listen, most of us are bigger students of our life than we are students of God. Can I get an amen? We worry, we study, we freak out, we share with others, we talk and talk and talk until we're blue in the face, we revisit, we say the same thing, we have the same phrases, we make a presentation to this person, then we just shave the edges off of it, make the same presentation to somebody else. We, we are studiers of us. We know the foes. We talk about the foes. Everybody's got a name. Everything's got an issue. We struggle with things. We talk about things. We talk a lot and study a lot about us. But what's more important than whether you can ever figure you out or whether you can ever figure out why is that foe the way they are? Why, why do people do stuff like that? You got those issues going on? You're just freaking out because somebody in your life is something different than what you are. And you're just confused by it. You're just living on our heels. I mean, for days. 
just can't believe. I mean, why does why do people do stuff like that? I just don't get it. As as though, well, so the moment you get it, you're going to be okay. Is is that going to fix your happiness? The moment you get, oh, oh, text or call or whatever it is that you do, honey, I just got a revelation. <laughs> I just figured out why people are the way they are. Oh, I'm so liberated. Trust me, that won't fix you at all. At some point, that'll still harm you. It'll still be inconvenient and painful. More important than understanding you or the people around you or or anything is what you know about your God. Do you really know him? So in the midst of war and all this difficulty... David's principle is the Lord is something. Therefore, verse four, therefore, there's just one thing. There's just one thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Right, The thing that David knew that would fix him as life threatened him and closed in on him was whatever it is that he could see about God. That's what was going to fix him. Right, and, and remember we started some of this back in Psalm 73. And, and Psalm 73 is either Asaph, the writer of the psalm, declaring his own experience, or some guys think it's David, whose experience is to have been freaked out by all the evil people doing well and all the hardship he's experienced until he came into the temple of the Lord. Well, what happens in the temple? Well, the temple was a place of God's presence dwelling there. And so the revelation of God hits the psalmist just like it does here. And so if I I can just sell us on a point here, there's one thing that's more important than everything else in your life. There's one thing... That's more important than everything else in your life. It's your knowing God. We could preach a whole series on sometimes why it is that God takes us the long way. Have you figured out yet in your life there's shorter distances between where you are and where God's taken you? Where you used to be and where you are now? There's shorter distances than how you got here. Why, Lord, why did we wander through the wilderness all those years? Why the long way, God? Well, because I'm just not interested in getting you here. I'm interested in you knowing me while you get here. Now, listen, if you're not interested in that, can I just tell you right now, you, your happiness versus God's happiness is not going to get along real well. This is why I say if you've got, you got a different pursuit definition for happiness than what God has, you and God are going to be at odds a lot because God's got no problem taking you the long way so that you can know him because he knows that in your knowing him is the real source of your satisfaction in this life and your well-being. It's not in the shortcut. It's not in the easy way. It's not in favor in the wrong categories. It lies in that place. But, but here's this one thing about God. Put this in your outline. The M.O., That's your modus operandi. If you never knew what your MO was, that's what it is. Your mode of operation as a Christian is not one thing exclusively, but rather one thing preeminently. Can you just be careful? 
how you interpret what I'm about to say here. It's not one thing exclusively. It's one thing preeminently. It's not as though God turns around and says, hey, look, look, your life is about, it's about knowing me. So, you know, if you're married, get rid of that baggage. Go ahead and get divorced. If you've got kids, neglect them, move away from them, leave them on their own. If you've got a job, uh, uh, whatever the job is, it's in the way of you knowing me. Get rid of that too, because it's just all about just, just knowing me. Okay, well, that's, that's, that doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? So it's not one thing exclusively, it's one thing preeminently that God has called us to, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm preeminent. I'm the one thing that you're seeking above everything else in your life. I'm the one thing that you're to be after, that everything else pales in comparison. Remember, God gives these commands. He takes his people to Sinai. They're on their way somewhere, right? You recognize that? Right? When they get to Sinai, Sinai is not the destination, is it? Do you know where the destination was? Where was the destination for the people of God in the book of Exodus? The promised land was the destination. The promised land, which was filled with candy and vending machines and fun stuff and theme parks and all kinds of things. Stuff that you didn't build. Vineyards that were planted. Wells that you didn't dig. A land flowing with milk and honey, which, by the way, God planned to give to his people. He didn't say, look, here's my plan for you. Here's my commands. Uh, And then there's this blight-filled desert where nothing grows. And that's my destination for you because it's one thing exclusively. You're not to enjoy anything or be distracted by anything. So just live in a desert. No, God's plan is to take us into abundance. God's plan is to bring us into good things. But the Bible warns over and over again, when you get in the presence of those good things, God says, be careful that you don't forget about me. So don't, don't put these at odds with each other. They have to live in the same neighborhood. There's a lot of good things that are in your life right now. There's a lot of good things. The problem is not that they're in your life. The problem becomes when they get before God. That's what Exodus 2 is saying. When the good things that are in your life become bigger and more important to you, more worth knowing and pursuing than God, now you've got a problem. And they can, can be the things God's given you, right? God can give you a spouse and that spouse can take God's place. God can give you children and they can take God's place. God can give you a great job and a great career and that thing can shove God out the way. That's the problem. It's not that you have those things. It's that they've been, become before God. So there's one preeminent clause that, that characterizes our life. There is one thing above every other thing that you and I are to pursue and to know. I put Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and through 33 in your outline. I won't take time to read it. But you guys remember, this is, the, this is the question to the average person. If you don't know these verses, if you're new to the Bible or you're new to the Christian faith, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through verse 33, just need, you just need to read it until it's second nature to you. Because it's asking a question that every one of us visits. Why are you anxious about, and then it just goes into some categories. Why are you freaking out about something? 
Why are you anxious about your clothing, what you're going to wear? Why are you anxious about food and how that's going to be provided? Why are you anxious for your life, what's going to happen tomorrow? If you've never read Matthew chapter 6, go home tonight and don't do anything before you read chapter 6 of Matthew. Because it's where we live. We're anxious about fixing our sense of well-being. We're anxious about the provision in our life. We're anxious about the things that we think will produce happiness for us. We freak out about that. And how does God fix that freaking out? Well, if you get to the end of that chapter or that passage in verse 33, it says, hey, listen, God knows you need these things, right? Notice the Bible doesn't say, God is telling you forget about those things. Forget about clothes, forget about food, forget about tomorrow. Just forget about that stuff. Now, the Bible's not telling you to forget about those things. It's telling you to entrust them to God. Because God's not against your clothes and God's not against you eating tomorrow and God's not against you having provision in your life. He knows you need these things. Because I just, you know, some of us here are more spiritual than the Bible. So this is why people built monasteries and fled from the world. Because they, they thought the only way to really have God is to have him exclusively. And so they just decided we'll just, we'll just separate ourselves from everything that competes with God. And that's not God's plan. God's plan is to stick you where stuff will distract you and will compete with him. And yet he's speaking to you and saying, but I'm to be the one preeminent in your life. And so the answer to your anxiety is God knows you need these things, but seek first, not these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God, God will take care of those things, but make sure your first step The first thing you're committed to, the first non-negotiable of your life as a Christian is that you're going to seek after knowing God. First, above everything else. This is how God operates. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, Peter took the offering a little while ago. This is why God messes with your money. Because your money is something you will use to buy your happiness. Do you understand that? Right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to beat this premise to death, I know, but are we all in agreement that every one of us is in the happiness business? I don't, I don't care how stoic you are. I don't care what you don't do in your life. You've created categories where you want to dwell well in them. You want it to go good with you in those categories. And more than likely, somehow money can help you create that in a variety of ways. That's why God never leaves your money alone. That's why he says stuff like Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Well, if I do that, how will I have enough? Well, that's God's business. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Well, maybe God's definition of plenty is not my definition. Ah. Ah. That could be a problem, right? Maybe my definition of happiness and God's is not the same. Ah, I can't, I can't sell you anybody else's, but God's definition for happy. God will make sure whatever he provides for you is plenty. You might need to adjust your definition for plenty. And when you do, you find some real happiness there. But then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. First fruits, right? You know what first fruits are? First fruits are the moment God provides into your life, the first thing you do with it, preeminent, 
number one. But notice even in the tithe, it's not the exclusive thing you do with it. It's the first thing you do with it is you present it back to God and you give it to him. See, I know I've said this before, you guys, but this is just a, a huge, important reason why we give because giving protects us from something else taking God's place. Giving keeps me from looking to money and my ability to get money and what it can provide for me. Giving causes me to look to God as the source of my life and my happiness. That's why God messes with your first fruits. Now, let me, let me, let me move into this category here, this, this gazing that we're doing. We're gazing at God because who God is preeminently, who God is in first place, who God is as the most important, the one thing of all things that we're asking of God is that we might gaze on him and know him. This, this, is, this is primary knowledge for every one of us. It is not optional knowledge for any of us. You cannot be one of those Christians who comes into a room like this and, and you have these gradations going on. You know, Somewhere in this room are... Christians who just have decided in some bizarre way to take this to another level. You know, I'm just your average American suburbanite Christian, but there's some, there's some people in here, you know, and, you know, they're the people who really read the Bible a lot and they witness to others a lot and they, they give a lot of their money and they serve in the church and you get those kind of Christians as though they exercise an option on something that you can just neglect that's not, that's not Christianity because there aren't any grades like that in Christianity. You either are a Christian or you're not. And if you are, everything I've been speaking about applies. This doesn't just apply to the really serious Christians. You know, one day I'll be a really serious Christian, I think. Oh, listen, if you're not interested in being a serious Christian right now, then don't ever think you're going to be interested in being a serious Christian because all you've got is right now to respond to God. But I do want to say this soberly. Fixing your happiness, which I think is bound up in our knowing God, fixing your happiness is conditional. There, I've said it. It's conditional. You may or you may not fix your happiness. Now, we don't, we don't like that word conditional. Do we? Right now, some of you right now, your theological knots are getting tighter. You're right now you're going, wait, wait. I'm trying to remember other stuff you've said, Keith, I can use against you because I think you're wrong here. I mean, conditional? There's conditions? It's not God. God, Keith, God loves us unconditionally. Oh, that's quite a phrase. It's, 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 a, it's a theological concept that like peanut butter has gotten spread all over our lives and everything smells like peanut butter now. It's everywhere. Everything's unconditional because God's, you see, Keith, God's love is unconditional. Therefore, everything's unconditional in the Bible. Just there's no conditions. It's all about what God does. Keith, I've heard you say that. There's no conditions here. Well, this, this is where it might be just helpful if we study the Bible a little bit more than we do. Because then we could come across conditions and not freak out because we can understand how conditions can sit next to unconditional things. Because everything's not unconditional. John Piper says, do you see this? He's referencing Psalm 25, if you ever want to go back and read this. Do you see that there are conditions we meet in order to receive God's guidance? 
God's loving kindness, God's instruction, and God's protection. If you read Psalm 25, you'll find out that there's a lot of conditions happening. That once you are in this condition, then these things become real in your life. And, and what's, what's the corollary to that? Well, if you never find yourself in this condition, then you will never find these experiences either. Now, I use the word never carefully because that's wrong. God, because he's God, can choose to trump anything he chooses to trump. And none of us can tell him he can't. But when God establishes a condition, I think we're just fools to say, well, you know what? I'm ignoring the condition and I'm putting all my chips down on mercy. Yep, that's me. Let it roll, God. I'm, I'm just, you're merciful. I'm disobedient and stupid, but you're merciful. All my chips go right there. Uh, boy, I don't find a Bible verse anywhere that says for you to do that. So if you're doing that, you really are a gambler because I can't help you. Piper says, there are indeed real conditions that God often commands. We must meet them for the promised blessing to come. But that does not mean that we are left to ourselves to meet the conditions or that our action is first and decisive, right? So there's other theology that informs this. But be careful how you understand that other theology. I'm going to read to you from Proverbs here. Just a moment. But Bruce Walkie, speaking of Proverbs 2, says the condition entails commission, uh, commitment. Where there's, a, where there's a condition from God, it involves us being committed to whatever it is he said. True knowledge flows from personal commitment to a set of particulars, not from detached observation of them. Detached observation. I... Come on, let's, let's be honest. Christianity in the year 2014 in America. Let's be honest. We are specialists at detached observation. We are removed from the big deep things of God and we just observe them very casually from a distance. We are specialists in this area. And so this passage here in Proverbs chapter 2, if you want to turn there with me, is enormous because of what it implies. Because we all want to fix our happiness, right? I don't think anybody's here wanting to be miserable. Not another day. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if, that's a big word. I know it's just two letters. But it's a very big word. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, the if precedes every one of those. Yes, if you Call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then, we love the thens, but you don't get to the thens without the ifs first. Then 
you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, right? Centerpiece of our happiness and why we exist right there in that verse. Then you will find the knowledge of God. Then you will know your God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right? Can we just, can everyone, all of us just receive a moment of correction here? Right? How many of us feel like God is hiding from us? He won't reveal himself to us. We've got questions. He doesn't seem to have answers. I can't seem to get an appointment. Uh, when I do show up, it seems like he's out of the office. He doesn't return my calls. I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking. All right, so where's the problem here? Well, it's God, isn't it? It's just, it's God. Because, you know, come on, guys. We all know we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's God who's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Isn't that usually the problem? Right. Well, according to this verse, there's a bunch of ifs hanging on us. And then there's a statement of truth in verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. It's like God's got a bank full of it. You, you, it's stored up for you. Come pull up to the ATM and make a withdrawal. I want to know what to do. God, I'm so, you know, what do I do with my life? Oh, I'm so worried about what I do with my life. God, what steps do I take? How do I resolve this situation? Well, pull up and get something from God. God the Bible says he's a revealer of these things. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He's storing up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. Then, another then, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Really, wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. How many of you guys want to have a pleasant soul? I mean, it's just another way of saying, I want to be happy. Right? I mean, I know happiness means different things to different people. When this is a sense of internal well-being. Well, where is it coming from here? Well, it's coming from God revealing himself, making known to us who he is and what he's like and his wisdom. And, and when is that going to happen for us? Well, it's if we receive his words and we treasure them up in our hearts, and we make our ear attentive, and we incline our hearts to understanding, call out for insight, raise our voice for understanding, seek like, seek it like it's silver and search for it like it's a hidden treasure. Right? This, these are, these are, these are gazing words, right? These are not glancing words. These are intentional, intense pursuit, want, crave, desire, enamored with, affection for, willing to sacrifice, gotta have it, get out of my way words that the Bible describes. Now, can I, if you're here feeling like, you know, I don't, I don't know that my ear is attentive and I don't know if my heart is inclined. I don't know if I can remember last time I called out or raised my voice or sought and searched for this, like it was a treasure. Okay. Your ear is not attentive and your heart is not inclined. 
Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised at how disinterested you can be in God? I mean, you're a Christian for goodness sake, right? Own up, have a little backbone. Are you surprised that you can be a Christian and be so stinking disinterested in God? Well, if I read the Bible, I'm not surprised. I wish it weren't that way. And here's the good news. One day it won't be that way. Hallelujah. It's called heaven. It's a totally different MO in heaven. You got no struggles in these categories. There's, there's nobody standing in heaven pulling you out of the corners of heaven because you're so disinterested in the throne and, and having to tell you, you know, it'd be really nice if you'd be a little more attentive to God and incline your heart toward him. Okay, that, that, that ain't happening in heaven. But this Bible is the operations manual for earth. It's happening here. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. We all struggle with it. I, I shouldn't be surprised if, you know, if I read in Romans chapter 8... I find out that the mind that is set on the flesh does not submit itself to God. Indeed, it cannot. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It wants to resist God. It wants to fight God. It wants to be its own God. It has its own set of explanations. It wants to take God to court. Because it's already figured out why life is the way it is and how it's supposed to be. And who's at fault? And it's not me. It's God. He's at fault for the way things are. And so that, that's the condition of your mind. Now, if, you're, if, you're, if that's the only experience you have, then you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, there is a war going on with that mind. But remember, because you know, when I just said heaven, we wouldn't have any of that. Everybody... Everybody cool with that? Everybody amen to me on that one? In heaven, we got nothing that I just described going on. But you're not in heaven. And this body has still got gravitational effects in it. Now, there's, you're a Christian, so there's something new happening. There's the spark of the Holy Spirit. There's the new man that God has made us that is in existence right now in us. That's real. And in heaven, I will get a new glorified body. So what do I have right now? I got, I got a non-glorified body. I got an atom body. I got a body that, that still has something in it that's described by Romans chapter 8. That doesn't mind being hostile to God. Doesn't want to submit to him. Right, so that's part of me. So I shouldn't be real surprised the Bible come along and says, hey, if you'll make your ear attentive and incline your heart, well, why do I have to do that? Well, because your, your feet are still touching earth. That's why. And so when you go to do that, don't be surprised that what a war you're going to have on your hands. Right, when you go to pick this up and read it and bend your heart toward it, 
and be willing to receive from it and actually search it like it's treasure and seek to find it like it's valuable, like silver, like this will make me richer than anything else on this planet. This right here will reveal something to me that'll make me the wealthiest person in the world. I just use terms that we don't use that way, do we? How many of us want to be rich? I want to be rich. How many of us want to be wealthy? Oh, I want to be wealthy. Those words already have a definition, don't they? So when I said rich and I said wealthy, you provided the definition for them. And you're ready to take God to court. If he doesn't provide for you, your learned definition for rich and wealthy. If God should choose to give you wealth, that's different than that. Would you consider yourself wealthy? I mean, here, here's, here's the epicenter for problems for Christians. No, I would not consider myself healthy, wealthy. If God doesn't give to me my definition for wealth, I won't consider myself wealthy. Therefore, he is not faithful to me. And I am not a happy Christian. There's, there's something learned here in chapter two, verse nine, right? Once you've been hungry and eager and seeking and getting around God, calling out, inclining your ear, opening your heart to him, verse nine, then, then, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, just uprightness is what that word means, and every good path. Then, once you are in that posture to where you're pursuing the knowledge of God, you are hungry for it, you value it like it's more worth anything that you could have in this world. Once that's where your heart is, then you will discern things like righteousness, equity, justice, good paths. Now, how many, how many of you believe that to really, truly be happy, you have to be on a good path? You guys would say that's true. Okay, the rest of you are dead. Um, We'll set in front of you today, every day, every moment, our multiple paths to walk on. And all of us are making this decision. I'm choosing the one that I believe by faith will take me to happiness. So if it involves, how many of you guys know you've made decisions to embrace sin full blast wholeheartedly because you thought it would take you to happiness? It would increase your sense of well-being. It'll take me where I want to go. But it was not upright It was not righteous. It was not a good path. And we were walking on it. So so here's a condition that's here. I I need a new definition for a good path. I need to be discerning about what things are righteous and what is just and what is equitable, has value and uprightness before God. Where am I going to get that? Well, I'm going to have to get around God to get that. I have to be in his presence. I'm going to have to gaze and gaze and study and stare and get a little obsessive about who God is and what he's like. Because then I'll get a definition for righteous. Only then will I get a definition for righteous. And if I don't have a definition for righteous and good paths, well, then I'm choosing a path. It's just really not a good path. And at the end, it is not going to produce the kind of happiness God's interested in. Now, let me just take this last moment just to disturb us for a second. 
because we are, we are living in an age where the, if the knowledge of God is, is like spiritual oxygen for our well-being, <clears throat> this culture, the age in which you and I live, is designed, designed, it's not an accident, it's designed to suffocate you. It's designed to leave you gasping for spiritual air. That, that's, that's why if, you know, if we took an exit poll on the way out and it said, hey, how'd you do getting in the presence of God this past week? How'd you do picking your Bible up, inclining your heart, reading and engaging God? Be amazing that so many of us who, who love God would have been so unsuccessful at that this week because the culture you live in is designed intentionally to suffocate you spiritually. In a very interesting book I'm reading lately by David Wells, he says, the goal of Christ's redemption was, after all, that we might know God, love him, serve him, enjoy him, and glorify him forever. This is indeed our chief end. It was for this end that Christ came, was incarnate, died in our place, and was raised for our justification. It was that we might know God. And this knowledge of God, this experience of his goodness is what our experience in life has sometimes diminished. Right? Do you follow that? Our experience in life, the way we do life quite often is diminishing our knowledge of God. This is our goal in life that we might be God-centered in our thoughts and God-fearing in our hearts. How is it going to happen if we never consider or consider only fleetingly or irregularly the end toward which we travel and the one who also walks with us through life on the way to this end? Right? If, If my knowledge of God and my pursuit of the knowledge of God is fleeting and irregular... If, if that's what describes my life, how am I ever going to have God be the center, the preeminent, the one thing in my life? He goes on and says, at the beginning, though, I, I want to highlight two challenges we will con- encounter. This is the beginning of this book he's writing. He says, do we agree that if we want to know the character of God, then all we need to do is open our Bibles? Everybody agree with that? that you can open this Bible and discover the character of God and what he's like. After all, biblical truth is the foundation of our knowledge of God. It is scripture alone that is God-breathed, and therefore it is the source of our knowledge of God. Is this not entirely sufficient then? Is the Bible not sufficient? Well, yes, it is. The answer, of course, is that scripture is indeed sufficient. However... There's a proviso here. There's a condition. Scripture will prove sufficient if we are able to receive from it all that God has put into it. That, though, is not as simple as it sounds. We are to be those in whom truth is the internal driver and worldly horizons and habits are not. Our experience of our culture may have affected how we see things. Given the intense exposure we have to our modernized world, we need to be alert to the way it can shape our perspective and understanding. Right? Can you just catch this for a second? 
it has defined pathways. And the, the sign over that pathway says, good. This is a good pathway. Well, good pathways, we get convinced, lead us to happy places. So off we go down that pathway. And that pathway is marked and defined by the ideas of this world. The ideas that we've said earlier on lack wisdom and lack the knowledge that God created us in his image to be image bearers of his. That sign is not about God's image being born out in your life. It's about something else, but it's promising you happiness. David Wells says, the second challenge I'm going to mention you may have experienced even in the short time since opening this book. It is the extraordinary bombardment on our mind that goes on every day from a thousand different sources that leave us distracted. With our minds going simultaneously in multiple directions. How then can we receive from scripture the truth God has for us? If we cannot focus long enough, linger long enough to receive that truth. Every age has its own challenges. This is one of ours. It is the affliction of distraction. That needs to be a bumper sticker. The affliction of distraction. Man, I feel it. Do you feel it? We are afflicted with distraction. It is all around us. And our most desperate need, according to the Bible, is to focus our attention in one place and we're getting worse and worse and worse at doing it. Because this culture is designed to suffocate you spiritually. Listen, all of us, all of us want to be happy. We've said this word, this word right here, it reveals God who is the source of life and happiness to us. And we say this word is sufficient, but you understand it's conditionally sufficient. It's only sufficient if you read it. How many guys agree with me that gasoline is sufficient to make your car run? Y'all all with me? And you regularly pull into a gas station, don't you? Right, see, gas is not sufficient at all if it never gets in your tank. You're done. You're going to leave your car in the parking lot today. Because it's only sufficient when it gets in us. Now, here's the other danger, and I just want us to be wise about this. Some people have already traveled down, quote, pathways, and they've come back to tell us what's good and what will make you happy. I want to say this carefully because I don't want us, I don't want us to hate people and be harsh toward people. But I want to use this as an example. And if you're a friend of this guy, just you know, come talk to me afterwards. I'm not trying to be mean to him. But here's what I think a guy like a Joel Osteen does. And this is why it's confusing to the average Christian. I think Joel has spent a lot of time traveling down what somebody called a good pathway. It's got words on it like wealth prosperity. Those are, those are enjoyable words. We like those words. And, and he has, I think, been dipped in American words. And then he ran back to the Bible and he 
picks the Bible up and he hijacks words out of this in order to help you get this. And that sounds Christian a little bit because he's using words like faith and God and good things and promises. And, and so he actually is using terminologies that are in here, but, but he's trying to travel on a road that's not, not been discovered by gazing at God. Where God uses words like wealth and riches and inheritance in a different way. Do you know God uses those words about him? Yeah, I've said this before. It's a terrible tragedy that the church would rather inherit something else but God. Because every one of us in this room, you can have a meager bank account. You can have not great health. You can be going through a season in life that looks like less than what somebody else has. But if you have God, you are unbelievably wealthy. You have riches beyond this world. Somewhere, somebody told us, if you want to be happy, now go down that path right there. A path that didn't get defined by the reality of who God is in our lives. Because I, I want us to be a happy people. I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. I want that for us as those who represent God upon this earth. But if you and I don't get around God, this world is providing definitions for happiness. If you and I don't get around the presence of God and study and look at and cry out and long for and incline our ears, if, 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 then, then you'll experience some happiness the way this Bible's discussing. And I can tell you this right now, we're not done with this series, but I can tell you this right now, if, if, if this never increases in your life, this was a big waste of time. Because you can't survive on Sunday mornings. I'm just telling you, Sunday morning's got a place in your life, but you can't survive on it. So I just want to tell you, as somebody who's been carrying this around in my heart for almost a year now and just waiting for God to have a, a season where we would release and talk through these things and pray and receive something from God... But if this doesn't get picked up and set in front of you and meditated upon and considered and renews our minds and affects our vision of God, then this was a big waste of time. And I'm grateful for all the encouragement. Many of you have written emails and stopped me to tell me how this series has been affecting you. Thank you for that. It's very encouraging. Please, there's no greater thank you than to go home this week and pick this Bible up and figure out a way in, in the affliction of distraction to make this a priority, to get around it to taste and see the goodness of God, to get new definitions for what will really make us happy. And next week, we're going to start gazing upon this God and seeing him. Let's stand up together. Lord, some of us sputtered our way in here our motors just won't seem to get started. Lord, just being honest, Lord, there's some of us here this morning. We're, just, we're not really that happy. Lord, we're just not, some of us are just not happy at all right now. Maybe that's you. Maybe right now you're standing here and you're saying that, that's been me.
I'm about 80% sure that your problem is in one of two places. You're either not getting enough God or the spark of the Holy Spirit is missing in your life, which could be for a variety of reasons. You, you could be here this morning and there's no spark because you're not really a Christian. The spark of the Holy Spirit comes from the invasion of the presence of the Spirit. He comes into your life. You can't create spark on your own. He's got to give it to you. Or you could be a Christian and you're sort of dipped the work of the Spirit in water by living in sin and disobeying God and neglecting what he's called you to do and the spark is missing. So you get around God and you're here this morning and you know, sort of the, the carburetor of a pastor has injected some God fuel into your presence and you're going to walk out of here wet. You're not going to fire up. There won't be any explosion of the Spirit because you've been grieving the Spirit of God. You've been living in such a way that there isn't a spark in your life to ignite the truth of God when it comes to you. It's not that God's truth is dead. It's that the spark of the Spirit has been affected by your decisions. So let's, let's pray for a moment before we close here. Just bow your heads with me. If you're here this morning and and you don't recall a moment when you became a Christian, when the Holy Spirit came into your life with renovating power, touched you and changed you and started you down a new pathway that you knew this was different. But this morning you would like to have that moment take place right now for you. Well, you can do that. You can do that right here, right now. You do it by praying, you do it by turning to God in faith and asking for him to forgive you of your sins. And he does that because Jesus Christ took those sins on himself, paid their price, removed them as a barrier. And this morning invites you to receive the Holy Spirit, the life of God himself into your life. What does God ask for you to do? Well, he asks for you just to trust him. Put your faith in him to repent, turn away from sin, be done with that stuff and turn in faith to God. And I'm going to pray a prayer. And that's what you want to do this morning. Do that with me. Pray this prayer to God yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, this morning I, I turn to you. I ask for your forgiveness in my life. I know that I've sinned and broken your law. But this morning, I believe in your forgiveness. Believe that you came to take my sins and to take my punishment and to remove it. I put my faith in you that you did exactly that. You were raised from the dead because God accepted your payment for my sin. So this morning, God... I'm turning to you and I ask you to come take up your life in me. Come bring the spark of the Holy Spirit into my life. Come bring the power to know you into my life. Come bring a new day into my life. Lord, today I turn to you and I give you my life. In Jesus name.